0: either all in the sunlight or they're all in the shadows and they're at distance, you know, a couple miles, you're gonna have a hard time judging their antlers because they just kind of get washed out with the background, but just keep watching the buck. And when he makes that transition from walking from the bright sunlight into the shadows or from the shadows into the bright sunlight, it throws a lot of contrast on the antlers. Um, I, I don't know if it's just the background or the shadow. I don't really know, but I've noticed this over like 20 years. If I can just get them to the edge, I can judge them. is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a RockCast promo code. Welcome back to the RockCast, everybody. Today is my ADD episode. It is a hodgepodge of topics, and you're going to have to hang on. We're going to be talking about Swarovski ATC repairs. We're going to be thanking some of our RockCast listeners. We're going to meet Sam Weaver, the host of our Tipsy Tuesday. We're going to get a quick field update from Travis Hobbs. We're going to scan Instagram to see how these early season hunts are going. And we're going to read a chapter from Hunting Big Mule Deer on small picture research. Yep, my ADD episode. And if you didn't know it, I actually love having ADD. Yep, I was that little kid in the counselor's office in third grade with wires hooked up to me and people trying to teach me how to breathe and calm and all that stuff. And while I'm really thankful that those people helped me, um, they couldn't put that bear in a cage. And I'm 54 years old now and I've kind of realized ADD is a gift from God. And my hunting brothers that are out there that have ADD, you know what I mean. If you find something you like, you can get more done in one hour than most can in two days. And if you really latch onto something, you can focus like no other person on the planet. Yeah, details often go out the window and we create great big messes. But few people can take a shotgun blast to the face of stimulus like we can and just keep rolling. So no matter what that nice old lady of a teacher told you, it is a gift from God. Just remember, not everyone can understand us and sometimes we got to slow down just a bit and let everyone catch up. There's that deep breath that my counselor taught me. So, seriously, this is a multi-topic episode, so listen close, and here we go. Back in August, I had asked listeners to chime in with reviews if they were finding the podcast valuable. Now, we had been running the podcast since March and had not asked for reviews. Uh, we wanted to get our content out there and let everybody have a chance to get used to the multi-host um format that we're running and make sure they found value in it. Rockslide has done over a thousand product reviews in the last 12 years. Think about how many reviews that are. And and we did not want to be held to a different standard than what we hold um, a lot of manufacturers to. We wanted to put our product out, hence the podcast, and let you be the judge. But after about four or five months of doing it, I thought it was time to call for reviews. I didn't ask for five-star reviews. A lot of podcasts do. I get why they help you. If you get a lot of five-star reviews, they really help you. But we're not afraid of the one-stars and the three-stars. We'll read those too. But a lot of people got on after that episode and gave us a review. I really appreciate it. And I may have missed somebody, but um, I wanted to read through the list here and just give a personal thanks to everybody that stepped up. Some of these are screen names. Uh, so I might butcher them but uh, first and foremost David Rydell we thank you for being a podcast listener David we love your Instagram page by the way uh, thanks to Drew Bears um, rely s-r-o-o-l-g I don't know how to say that man but we want to thank you too bass fisherman fanatic thank you for your, your review uh, climb zero zero 9 Hunt and Fool 85. I'm pretty sure that guy's a Rockside member. I've seen him on there before. Thanks for your reviews. S Frost 88, Benji 812, Hunt High 1, MSJ 12, Muley Over Elk. I like that name. Muley Over Elk. Thank you for your reviews. Iron and Oxygen, Backcountry Bob, Jonathan Horton, Horn Hunter 1, and JK Tront Vane. Thank you for everybody that left us a review. If you have not left a review on the podcast, if you're finding value, please jump on there. Leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. Those are always helpful and we read them all. Let's see. Also to the listeners from a couple of episodes back when I, when I gave you some homework to go take a look at those five different hunters on Instagram who had all taken big mule deer with their bows I gave you some homework to go out there and tell me what was the common theme in four out of those five bucks. And I heard from a lot of guys and I put a little list together here, wanted to give you a public shout out. These are the guys that that chimed back in uh, with the answers. Um, Some of them I had to send send them back to the post and read a little closer, but uh, hopefully uh, it made you all better buck hunters, and, and I actually did hear from guys in, in, that got back to me that that was pretty fascinating, that trend in four out, of, four out of those five bucks. So it's not too late. If you didn't get a play, you can jump back to that other episode um, uh, and uh, see what the common theme was in four out of those five big bucks that those guys took with archery gear. Um, but anyways, um, we heard from uh, Trevor Treherne, James Dutton, Alex Crawford. Pedro Sandoval, Shane Rasmussen, AJ Denitus. I think is how you say that, Wade Paskett, Branson Barr, Matt and Nicole Nariso, Jonathan Horton, Jason Higley, Logan Hykris, Connor Rainwater, Capizo, might be a screen name, and Dawson Hallows. If I missed anybody, I'm sorry, uh, Instagram's kind of confusing how it stacks the DMs, but I think, I think those were the guys I heard from that had the right answer. Uh, thanks for trying to be a better buck hunter, and uh, hopefully that homework helped you. I know it helped me. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're going to do a segment here, just a short 15-20 minutes. I want you to meet Sam Weaver. Um, I've got him on Zoom here. I'm going to uh, click off of here and jump over there, get him introduced, and then we'll swing back with an update from Travis Hobbs. Okay, everybody, I'm on the call here with our own Sam Weaver of Rockslide. Uh, he's been hosting our Tipsy Tuesday since way back in March when we started the podcast. Uh, it kind of feels like he came out of nowhere for some of our listeners. I know some guys are wondering, who is this guy? Um, well, we've known him for a long time. Uh, I met him actually on the Rockslide forum where I've met so many great people over the years. And I met him on our our what we call our welcome forum our fng forum Uh, fng i think stands for fantastic new guy um, I believe Ryan Avery has another definition for it, but this is a family podcast. So um, I just noticed there was always a guy on our on our welcome forum. That's where guys get on and just, you know, tell us a little bit about where they're from, what brought them to the forum. There was always this really nice guy on there welcoming everybody, engaging them in conversation. And a lot of time I, I would read his, I would read his welcome post because, you know, he would he would chat a little bit with the member and I could learn a little bit more about the member. Finally, one day I thought, man, this guy's working awful hard here. I, I should meet him. So I reached out to him and um, the rest is history. Before I knew it, Sam was doing articles for us, uh, reviews, and then um, he, he moved into a moderator position. Um, he's, he's one of our best moderators. Um, hopefully you're on his good side. Uh, that's why I think he's one of our best moderators. He can He's a great friend. But um, because he's a great moderator, he he can show you the door in a hurry, and uh, he helps keep the peace on the forum. Um, and and if you ever run a forum, you'll you'll know that's really important to keep the peace. So, anyways, I wanted to bring him on the podcast today and uh, introduce him formally. Talk a little bit more about Sam. So, uh, Sam, are you there, buddy?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Robbie, for having me on. Um, I'm excited to to be on the the big show i guess tipsy the tuesday is kind show, of a
0: dude. the big episode huh <laughs> yeah tipsy, a-
1: si- tipsy tuesday's a pretty big deal but yeah yeah re- being on with the with the legend is is gonna be something i tell my kids about Oh man, I'm
0: gonna hit the delete button here if you keep going on about this legend crap. What'd you do? Call Ryan before you came on here? So no, I listened to Tipsy Tuesday more than I listened to my own. Man, I re- I really like that format. And uh, to give credit where credit's due, Jordan uh, Bud was the one that actually started Tipsy Tuesday when she was on the podcast. And I remember when she first started talking about Tipsy Tuesday. I'm like, what is this like? wine wednesday or something are we going to be drinking on tuesdays and she's like no you know tips you know tips tips and tactics kind of stuff and so she took it from there and you know i always really enjoyed it um you know i like longer podcasts but sometimes it's nice to have an episode that's you know in that 20 to 40 minute range that you can you can listen to the whole episode at once and so when we were reinventing the podcast and kind of getting it going again, sam um it was great that you stepped up and, and took that over. Um, you didn't do anything more than tell us, hey, I'll record a couple episodes for you guys. And we said, okay, well, let's give it a try. But, you know, let's back up. What what were you thinking? Why did you step up to do Tipsy, Tipsy Tuesday for us?
1: Well, I really enjoyed the way Jordan had run Tipsy Tuesday also. Um, I'm a big Jordan Bat Bud fan. But for me, I, I thought, you know, that was really something I wanted to bring back, something uh, I think Rockslide's all about community, and I think being able to keep your your button on what's happening within the Rockslide community is really important. And I also think, you know, it's nice to be able to have a short segment about to talk about basically anything that you think is applicable, but in a fifteen to twenty minute, um, you know, conversation where people are engaging each other and and using facts i mean you can really talk about anything
0: yeah and i've liked it how you've done it like if we do a review you know you'll you'll track the writer down that did the written review and you'll say hey let's get you on the on the tipsy tuesday and do kind of a condensed version of the review not everybody has time to sit down and read a thousand word article on a product but you know if we can we can get it in audio form uh makes it so we can reach more people and plus you know i read all of our reviews because j- between justin and i you know we're, we're always editing those making sure they're readable um but it's always great to hear hear another version on tipsy tuesday so um, I like that. I like that you grab that, and plus the thing I like about Tipsy Tuesday. I mean, you've had members on there, you've had our writers on there, you know, you've had friends of yours on there. It's it's um a chance to meet just regular guys, you know, like like a lot of the members. And you know, we have some very knowledgeable knowledgeable members on Rockslide, and and you know, unless you're on the forum, you don't hear from them. But to to get them on the Tipsy Tuesday and hear their expertise or their skill set in a certain area because just about everybody's good at something that that's been great i I really like that i hope you continue with it
1: yeah i think that's the greatest part too about rock slide you know we have some real killers on there that don't use any other form of social media you know they're on rock slide and that's it and it's been really great to get some of those guys on and hear their perspective and and get to just you know chat hunting chat whatever they're into whether it's mule deer or, or elk or or whatever it is, you know, and, and pick their brain and get some tips and tricks from them.
0: One, one of those uh, episodes I was thinking of that I really liked, you had a couple of friends on there and I don't remember which state they were hunting, uh, but they were just regular Joes. I think it was a husband and a wife or maybe a husband and his boys. And, uh, you guys just went over how they were hunting these, you know, fairly accessible tags and, uh, sounds like not Not really backcountry, but they figured out how to hunt these bucks in that certain area. You know what episode I'm talking about?
1: Yeah, that was with the Sanchez's, uh, Marvin and Diane. That's right. It was husband and wife. And I just thought
0: it was great because we would never get to hear from people like that on a podcast. You know, um, you know, we didn't know them. I don't even know if they do social media, but you know, here they are with all these years of experience giving us tips and tactics. And, um, you know, just it's just good, good and refreshing. I mean, you can' there's only so many superstars out there that you can interview when it comes to a certain skill set. So to just hear from regular Joes that are getting it done, I, I like it, Sam. I hope you continue with it.
1: Yeah, me too. And I liked last episode. You know, getting to talk about rent outdoor gear. I mean, you know, like I yeah. said, there I've used it personally, but it's a great idea, and a lot of people haven't heard about it. And what's what's not to love about using the best gear that you can every year? So. Just things like that. I think maybe if you haven't heard about it or something news coming along I, I kind of just want to tee it up for you and, and kind of give you a chance to to research it yourself, maybe a little bit more.
0: Yeah, yeah. And even though I knew exactly what Rent Guns and Gear is, uh, you know, Darren Cooper used to be our editor. It was still uh, it was good kind of, kind of hear him explain about the business and really the the cost versus the risk. In renting gear, I mean, it's almost a no-brainer when you think about it. If you know, like, like I have a Swarovski BTX, I feel bad because I don't use it that much. I mean, when I use it, I use it; it's awesome. But man, you 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 think about the amount of days I use it per year, I might have been better off to rent one. (laughs) So, anyways, cool, man. Well, tell us a little bit about you, Sam. Uh, Where are you from?
1: Well, I live over here in uh, southeastern Utah, kind of near Colorado a little bit, and I think. You know, that for me, those of you that don't know, it can be difficult to to hunt in Utah. Um, we don't have a lot of general over-the-counter tags, you know, and it's really forced me to kind of go outside of Utah and, and look at other places and do other things and, you know, play the points game and and that kind of thing. And so I've been around and and just kind of, you know, hunted a lot of different places. I just like to hunt.
0: Gotcha. So, so are you born and raised in Utah? How'd you end up there?
1: Yeah, born and raised there. I uh, did spend a little time in the military. I met a lot of great people. Um, my wife's from the Midwest. We hung out there for a bit, and then um, when I got out of the military, we came back home to Utah. So,
0: gotcha, gotcha. So, uh,
1: so a dad with kids. Yeah, I got a three kids my oldest is a senior my youngest is seven so um yeah we're right in there
0: all right man you and i are pretty much at the same stages of life so well hey that's great uh, i always like talking to a family man that's that's figure figures out how to get hunting done um cuz that that is a challenge and uh i i think you just got back from montana you've already been on at least two states this year right
1: yeah i drew a deer tag in nevada I had a great hunt. It was a little frustrating. Um, You know, I think that's the challenge of hunting, I guess, for me, is what what makes it awesome and getting to see new sites and maybe chasing different animals or trying some different tactics. But yeah, I went to uh, somewhere in Nevada I'd never been and just kind of got up there and I scouted it a bunch, but found some deer, got on a really good deer quite a few times and i just couldn't get it killed so if you'd have told me i could get on a this deer i basically got on him three times right in his bedroom and just couldn't make it happen and you know it's kind of a heartbreaker kind of sad just talking about it right now but uh you know to me that's kind of a win and then one of my buddies drew a great elk tag in in uh also in nevada so i went over there for a little while and i just came back from a sheep hunt in uh Montana, so I just got back this morning. Actually, so all right,
0: but, and you—that was a, a your tag, right? It was a it was a U hunt, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it was. It was a U tag, and it was. I'd never even been over there, but it was. You know, anytime you can get a sheep tag, you take it and, and go all in. And it was a float hunt, and it was. uh I went with one of my buddies that from the army, and um, yeah, he killed a U. We saw one group of U's and. He killed one, and I didn't want to kill two ewes out of the same group, so ended up uh, not getting one, and I don't I don't think my wife's listening, but uh, yeah, I'm thinking about going back, so I don't know. Logistically, right, well, it's not not too good, but.
0: Let me know. We'll release this episode yeah. on a day she's busy. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so sure. you've done you hunts before, right? Didn't you kill a, a ewe sheep here in the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, I've. I drew, uh, Nelson sheep, which is a desert over in Nevada. Uh, I got on one of those, you know, and, and to me, you hunts can be challenging or maybe not as much, but you know, like I said, if you can get a sheep tag and you can get into sheep country, um, you gotta, you gotta give it a go. I don't, I don't think I'll ever draw a Ram tag. And, and to me, that's why I started to branch out and look at other opportunities.
0: No, you're a smart guy, man, and and I'll tell you what, um, uh, you know, you're you, we we should just we should just call it, man. Let's Sam's going for his grand slam, he's one fourth away there. He's got his Nelson, and um, uh, working on this is a bighorn
1: that you're working on in Montana, right? Yeah, Rocky Mountain.
0: All right, so dude, we can have all these conversations. We'll just never tell anybody that they're used
1: that that's, that's
0: for sure. And, you you know, on, I, I,
1: I will, I will also say this. I saw a lot more rams than I did use on this hunt. So, you know, I, I could have, I could have tagged out on a Ram.
0: Man. It sounds like a good way to get to hunt sheep. That's pretty cool. So uh, what do you do for your day job?
1: Uh, I work for a major railroad. I've worked there for 20 years. Um, I've worked everything from being the laborer, the, most entry level to all the way to a supervisor and and now i'm somewhere back in between there um i used to travel a bunch it gave me an opportunity to meet with a bunch of different guys from all over the country um i still you know that's the one thing about me too is you know i get to hang out with these guys pick their brains try and hunt their best spots and you know if they draw a good tag they'll call me and be like hey you want to come on this hunt it's gonna be pretty awesome and and sometimes just tagging along on a great hunt can can be super educational too.
0: You bet man, it's it's all about networking and uh really cool. Um so are do you do shift work?
1: Uh not right now. No, I I work uh I'm on a 5-8 schedule so I work Monday through Friday. Gotcha. Gotcha. Cool. So let's see what
0: else. Um, uh, Sam's done a bunch of reviews for us. I think you've published, um, I don't know, half a dozen or more on our our homepage. Um, you've been doing some uh, podcast reviews too. Uh, right now, you're running the Kawa 99. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's that's correct. Uh, I talked to those guys, and I think I think they want it back, but I'm not ready to to give it back quite yet, Robbie. That that thing's awesome, and. And I hope to get that review pumped out here shortly. But yeah, you can't go wrong with any of those alpha optics, but the 99, man, that thing is a world-class for sure.
0: All right. Well, I can't wait to hear more about it. I did hear your Kawa interview, but um, I think you're going to be submitting a written review on that Kawa 99. I'm sure you'll be talking about it on one of your Tipsy
1: Tuesday episodes. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think I just really, I wanted to digiscope a little bit with it on this On this trip in Montana, but, um, yeah, it was, it was pretty challenging being on the float hunt and being in a boat and trying to, that was the first time I'd really done a boat hunt and and all that goes together with that, but yeah
0: man, what an adaptable hunter. And, and, uh, Hey, I'll, I'll give you an, an insider tip on this alpha glass. When these companies send these out uh, as loaners. So what you, this is what I do. I just turn on my auto reply on my email and I tell them I won't be responding to emails till December 1st. And then that way, when they're asking for their scope back, they keep getting that. I mean, what are they going to do? Come to my house?
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I talked to Paul about it and, and I was like, man, I, I'm going to be hard pressed. Uh, to unleash this. So we'll, we'll see if I can uh, talk mom and to let me get one of my own.
0: All right, dude. All right. Well, we're, we're excited to hear about it. So uh, let's see. Um, you've you've also taken over our, our cliff tester position. For those of you that don't know what a cliff test on t- test is on Rockside, it's a very unscientific test that uh, we run um, any of our packs through that we review. Um, it started with Matt Cashel, and uh, he just started throwing them off of cliffs and uh, seeing how they perform. It's pretty unscientific because you can't really control how it's going to roll and what it's going to hit. But Sam has a a pretty cool place, in you. Utah that he, that he throws these off of, and I don't know, you've done two or three of them so far for us. Um, and, and I just saw your Kafaro 357 review that you did their pack. I didn't get to edit that cause I was gone. Justin took care of it.
1: And um, so d- did you get a cliff test test that one yet? Well, I, I was going to, but I've been using it actually a bunch for uh, day hunting and I got another one in the pipe too that I'll be testing another Kafaru. I'll be throwing off together. So yeah, as soon as I get a break in between hunt season here, I should have been a little more proactive early on, but uh well it might be smart
0: because if it wouldn't have passed, then you wouldn't be able to use it. You'd have to send it back to get it fixed.
1: Well, I'm not too worried. I <laughs> I I could usually tell maybe what's what's gonna break now after doing a couple, but yeah, yeah, I think it's it's pretty lucky that I have a good spot that it's uh, hard enough to test its capabilities, but it's not going to break everyone. So,
0: yeah, right, right. Well, for people that fun. haven't seen it, jump over to our YouTube channel and uh, just type in cliff test. You'll you'll see those come up. We've done them on and off over the years. They're kind of fun. And um, I, I'm always impressed with a sponsor when they come on and we're like, hey, we're, we want to cliff test this they kind of gulp and say, yes, I'm, I'm always <laughs> like, all right, man, they're, they're, they're all about rock slide. And, and, you know, they all do pretty good, but you know, they, they, they do break. And, and, and again, I think you could probably have the very best pack break depending on how it lands, but it, it's just kind of a fun unscientific little test. And, and it does seem like the really, the really, the better packs do come out on top. You know, it seems, seems like that they, None of them really come through unscathed. There seems like there's always something. But uh, you know, it's 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 a little reassuring to know that hey, if my pack takes a big tumble with 40, 50, 60 pounds in it, I can probably still finish the hunt.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of real world too. It doesn't take very much in some of these places, this high country, you know, you put it down and you're step away a minute too long and all of a sudden that thing's halfway down the hill. So, yeah, in some um, places, you know. When you're spending 700 bucks on something, you want to make sure that it's, it's going to be what able to hold up to what you want to throw at it.
0: That's right. We'll keep it up, man. And, um, uh, so I think this episode, episode's is going to air about the 28th. Looking at the schedule, it looks like you have a tipsy Tuesday schedule for October 3rd. You're going to be talking about altitude sickness.
1: Yeah. I had, uh, Dr. Uh, Will Free reach out and, uh, he's, a, he's well-versed in altitude sickness and, and I really wasn't, I guess I did a little research before talking to him, you know, and it's, it's pretty common. I think people are going to be shocked when they, they learn about it and some of the symptoms and, you know, just the first couple days, maybe the first day or two that you're up in the high country and you're just feeling a little groggy, a little something, maybe that's altitude sickness. So yeah, give it a listen for sure. He goes through it all.
0: Yeah, I think we get a little lazy with altitude uh, sickness because a lot of us live in the West. You know, we live above 5,000 feet, so we don't think about it a lot. But that doesn't mean we're not getting some of the symptoms of it. But there's a whole slew of guys, you know, from the Midwest into the East Coast and and even, you know, our West Coast that live at, a you know, 500 feet to 1500 feet elevation, you move those guys to eight or 9,000 feet, there's going to be issues. And, uh, I, I, like I said, I don't think about it a whole lot until I hear somebody has it. And I'm like, man, that's bad. I've seen some hunts absolutely ruined by altitude sickness.
1: Well, you know, even going to somewhere like Nevada, I was hunting the high country for those, um, above tree line muleys. And, Mm -hmm. and that, that country, the elevation there was a lot steeper than, a lot of people would imagine that Nevada holds and you know, the first couple of days I was kind of dragging some ass too.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that can be one of the symptoms. We don't even really realize it. So cool. And, uh, uh, Dr. Wilfried, th- that's just a rock member, isn't it?
1: That, that, that is correct. Just a forum member. And he was like, Hey, I see a lot of people asking some questions about this. I got, I got, uh, some information on it. You want to, you, you want me to get together and, and share it. And I was like, for sure. And I think that's one of the th- great things about tipsy Tuesday too. If you're listening to this and you have a good idea and you want to try to get it on tipsy Tuesday, you want to chat it up. I'm always open for that.
0: You bet. If you're an expert in class, you have a lot of experience with something like that. You know, that's what rock slides about. And, and just like that, I see will free on there all the time. I've talked to him a bunch of times. I didn't know he was a doctor. I didn't know he had experience in that. And and that, that that's the cool part about, about having a forum. That was one of the first things I learned about a forum is man. I do not know at all. There is a lot of guys out there with skill sets that are, you know, they're not on social media. You don't really know who they are, but you know, they've, they've got the experience and it, and it can really help you
1: as a hunter as well. So keep up the good work, Sam. All right, Robbie. Yeah. I think in just closing, you know, I, that's one of the things I really like about Rockslide slide too, is there's a lot of different tactics out there. And when you're successful, you know, you team them to rely on what, what makes you successful, but there's a lot of other stuff you could try and, and one of those might even make you better. You bet, man, you bet. Well, keep up the good work, Sam. All right, thanks for having me on, Robbie. Okay, you bet, bye-bye. Yep.
0: OnX Hunt is the number one GPS hunting app in the industry. And one reason they're leading is because they're continually providing updates to the OnX Hunt app. Updates like the new OnX n dash navigation suite. From the time you slide into the seat of your vehicle Viewing Onex Hunt with CarPlay and Android Auto allows you to easily flow from Onex to the road in front of you, ensuring you know exactly where you are and how to get where you're heading. Want directions to a certain point in the Onex Hunt app, but don't want to keep glancing at your phone? Use the Navigate To feature to navigate to your saved waypoints. This is true off-road navigation for hunters. You can now use the Onex Hunt app hands-free and have access to your map markups, public, private boundaries, routing, offline maps, and more. Do it all from the seat of your truck. If you're ready to make the jump, save 20% by using the code ROCKCAST at checkout. Okay, everybody, I I hope you enjoyed getting to know Sam a little bit more. He's one of the hardest working guys at uh, Rockslide, and um, I really appreciate him taking on that Tipsy Tuesday. So let's see, uh, Travis Hobbs. Uh, he kind of disappeared into the mountains about a week ago. Let's see, I'm recording this uh, podcast on September 22nd. Uh, I think the season he's hunting open September 15th, so I know he's been out there a week. I, I've heard nothing from him. I just kind of leave him alone when he's in the hills. It's, it's all stressful to me when I'm in the hills and I'm getting texts and everything like that. You know, I feel bad not answering them. I feel bad if I'm uh, that I that I might lose them. Um, you know, so I I tried I tried to do the same thing with my hunting buddies and just leave them alone when they're in the mountains. Uh, But I got an update from him this morning. I had a text when I turned on my phone this morning, and it was a video of a really nice buck. Now, you know, this is on a little screen here. Um, I'm just going to take a stab at it. A 175 and up buck, maybe even a little bit better, probably mid-20s wide, dark antlered buck. Um, And I thought, I was gonna see a kill shot. That's really what I thought I was looking at because I could tell it was it was digi spoke through a spotter. But uh, you know, it's like a 10-15 second clip and then it just ends and no words. And so I, I didn't know, is he telling me that he's gonna shoot this buck? You know, is he just saying, hey, here's a buck I saw? But you know, I I know it's been tough out there, and you know, I stayed in touch with Travis all summer, you know, he's my co-host here on the uh, rock cast, one of them, and uh, so I know he was working hard this summer, and like all of us, having a really hard time turning over any good bucks in the winter kill zones. And um, so when I saw that buck, I thought, man, you know, you gotta shoot it. So I, I just texted him back and said, hey, man, that'll do. And didn't hear from him for about ten or fifteen minutes, and and then he then he got back to me. and He says, I'm, I'm. Let me see, let me read it here. I got it right here. because um, I didn't know if I was gonna get a. Kill shot back, or, let's see, where's he at here, Travis Hawks, says, uh, I'm going to let him live, but he's a pretty damn nice buck for what I've been seeing. So, um, I'm with him, you know, you can't kill a really big deer if you just shoot the nice deer. I I just know this year a lot of us have lower standards, I thought Travis might too, but nope, he's going to let him walk, and... uh, man, whoever finds that buck next year, if, if, if he indeed makes it to next year, they're going to be pretty happy. It, it's a good buck. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of have a policy here. We never show any any uh, bucks that are that are still alive on on our social media. That just leads to problems. So it might be a while for you guys to get to see it, but may, maybe at some point, Travis will blow us up. And and who knows? I mean, he, he might lower his standards in the next couple of days and there would be no shame in taking that buck. So that's what I've heard. Um, let's see, speaking of that... Um, You know, Wyoming opened on uh, September 15th and usually it's pretty fun to get on Instagram and Rockslide about September 16th and scroll through what everybody's getting. And now this is very unscientific, very unscientific, but... Definitely have lost a lot of good bucks this year just by the lack of them on, on Instagram. And I follow a lot of people. You know, I'm not one of these people that just has an Instagram account and I don't follow anybody because I'm on Instagram to you know I want to see people's stuff. You know, I want to connect with people. And uh, man, it is slim pickings. And I just Man, I've maybe seen and, and I, I said Wyoming because that's the most recent one to open. Colorado high country rifles open right now in some select units. Obviously, archery has been open in Nevada, Colorado, Utah, but you know th- those those have kind of come and gone. Um, you know, everything right now is pretty much high country rifle, Colorado. Um, you know, I think Montana has a few high country hunts going on right now. Um, you know, and then I mentioned Wyoming, but it's. It's pretty slim pickings out there. I've only seen two or three good bucks and no, nothing really fantastic um, that, that have come off of those, uh, those winter kill areas. And not surprising. I mean, that's what winter kill does. It kind of takes off your top end. Um, yeah, just It is what it is, you know. Um, but the other thing I'm noticing, man, it is like five to one on nice bulls versus nice bucks. You know, the, the elk, I keep talking about it on the podcast. I don't hate elk. Uh, they're, they're kicking butt. But man, they're just—they're kicking too much butt. They are just doing so well right now. And uh, again, these—this is very unscientific. But you know, when I go through 20 uh, Instagram posts, and you know, two of them are kind of okay bucks, and then the other 18 are better than Raghorn, all the way up to really good bulls. Um, it just. It's why I say there's no better time to be an elk hunter. Rockslide also has some really good photo contests. They're not biggest bull or biggest buck contests, but best photo contests. Go, we're have we going on like eight years of them. Kafari uh, sponsors our uh, best uh, elk photo contest. Uh, Cryptic sponsors our best uh, mule deer photo contest. First Light sponsors our best whitetail contest. Stone Glacier sponsors our best wild sheep contest. And we even have a best best youth photo contest for those of you that have little ones um, that are that are hunting. Um, that one's on our youth forum. Go check it out. It's sponsored by uh, Western Edge Gear, the only maker of high quality uh, backpacks for children that I know of. Uh, so anyways, um, I, I always scan those too and just kind of see what everybody's bringing in. And there's some pretty nice bucks on the Rock Slide, uh, the Rock Slide one. It, it's looking pretty good. Now, obviously, you know, that's not very scientific because, you know, guys that get big bucks, you know, they kind of migrate to that contest. They usually take really good photos, but jump on there. There's definitely some big bucks out there and everything. I, I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but uh, you know, it's definitely it's definitely down right now, looking at what I usually see this time of year. Um, let's see, um, from what I'm hearing from the field, the guys that are in the winter kill area, that kind of that tri-state area of, of triple point of Idaho um Wyoming and Utah and then even over into some of that northwestern Colorado. A lot of that stuff's not open just yet, but it will be soon. Uh good year to pass on these 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 mid-class bucks. I talked about that in the last episode. Dr. Mackey out of Montana had done a study on uh deer densities after winter kill. And that's what he noticed was, you know, we kind of lost the young, you know, your 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 fawns and your you know your unhealthy deer that are maybe one years old just talking bucks here and then your older bucks but the prime age bucks which were kind of your two three four year old bucks those those always had a higher survival rate just healthier and uh that's pretty much what i've seen out there this year although four-year-old bucks are awful scarce too but you know a lot of that two three-year-old age class that's looking pretty good and i think that's why i've always seen really good bucks the following year and the following year after the first year of a hard winter. So if you have a hard winter in 2023, I usually expect to see some really good bucks, all things being equal, you know, good good conditions through the next winter and everything. Um, and see some good bucks in 2024 and 2025, although the herd is smaller. That's typically what I see. I'm not a mule deer prophet. I'm just telling you what I've seen in the past. And so with what I've seen, I've hunted uh, 13 days out of 16 before I did this podcast. Now I've been home for a week. I'm getting, I'm getting rested up. My pants are getting tight again. It's about time to go back out. Um, and as my wife always says when I come home, like, wow, honey, you just pretty much eat the house. And I think it's from being on that controlled, strict um, you know, you know, food regimen you know, that you got to do in the back country. And I come home and, oh man, I'm going to have some of that. Oh, let's have some of that. I'm not, I'm not a big potato chip guy they just make me fat, but man, I knocked out about a half a bag the other night. They, they were the best tasting taste potato chips. I've noticed that when I come out of the backcountry, everything just tastes so good. So anyways, I'm ADD, there I go. What was I talking about? Oh, those two or three year old bucks. Um, that's, that's what's out there right now. That's pretty much all I'm seeing. Um, not exclusively, there's two points around, there's all that stuff, but just the numbers are gone. Um, from that hard winter in the places that I've been, and uh, so that's pretty much what I'm hearing from guys. And and um, and you know, this gets into what you know, Epic Outdoors. I was uh, had Jason on the podcast here a little while ago, and they got their holy their whole muley matters movement going right now. And that's just basically just a little fun thing, you know. Pass up these 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 younger bucks if if you don't need the meat this year. No shame if you want to get one. No problem at all. But, you know, there's a lot of cow elk out there. It'd be a good year to hunt cow elk. Um, but the, the guys that are out there are saying, man, if we could just pass these these, these younger age class bucks up, at least at least it's going to brighten up the future. And I, and I agree with him. This is a good year to do it. Um, the One thing, though, I had Jeff Short on, that biologist from uh, Wyoming a few episodes back. We were talking about um, antler restrictions. And, you know, he brought something up. And that's what's always interesting about talking to these biologists because they don't think like hunters that's why i like to have them on the podcast and he said well you know the problem with restricting two point harvest after a hard winter because that's what everybody says don't shoot the two points don't shoot the two points he says is we're telling them not to shoot something that's not even there now obviously there's a few but but i know what he means like even if you don't shoot the two points it's not going to make a big difference because there's not really very many there And yeah, you can make the argument of, oh, I saved one, but that's not what gets a deer herd back on its feet. What gets a deer herd back on its feet is big fawn crops and good habitat. And, you know, I don't want to say mild winters, that helps, but you don't have too mild because that's what gets you into the drought. And so, uh, but good winters, good winters, let's just say that, you know. And, um, and so, you know, it is a good year to pass up on these, these younger bucks. I I get it. Let's just do it. It Makes us feel good. If you don't need the meat, if you do need the meat, blaze away, you know, no no judgment from me. Uh, but, uh, but that's not really what's going to turn this deer herd around. That might help a few big buck hunters if you pass up these middle-aged class bucks. But uh, I guess my whole ramble on this is that, you know, if you can get, if you can get a nice big fat cow up this year or a bull up, it's a good year to do it. And, uh, and, you know, maybe it'll make a little bit of difference with these deer. But I'll tell you what's going to make the difference is there's a bucket in my backyard right now. It is Friday night right now. And I put that bucket out there, I think, just a Thursday, I put it out there Wednesday night because we we're going to have this storm coming in. And this is about our third big rain event since mm, the first of August, third or fourth. And that bucket right now, when I measured it last night, when I got home from work, it had two and a quarter inches of rain in it in about a 20 hour period and then it rained again hard on and off throughout the night this morning when i went to work at 9 30 it was pouring in fact on the weather app they use the designation heavy rain now that that is an agreed upon definition that the national weather service uses they got the different categories if you look on your on on any credible weather app i use weather.com they'll use you know light rain rain and heavy rain those all relate to a, to a rate of inches per hour and i can tell you growing up in the west you do not see the designation heavy rain in in a description an official description from the national weather service More than just a couple times a year, you just don't see it. We just don't get heavy rain. That's usually happening if you're right in the middle of a thunderstorm. You know, it's that kind of rain. Now you get down into the south and Florida and stuff like that. That's, you know, that's happening all the time. You know, they get those high rainfall rates. We don't in the west, unless you're under a thunderstorm. Well, this is not, these are not thunderstorms I'm talking about. This is just your garden variety You know rainstorms that come in with low pressure systems and sit over areas for hours a thunderstorm comes and goes you know it it, you know it's there for 20 minutes and it's gone it matures you know it loses all its water it's gone um and so you know you can get an inch of rain out of a thunderstorm but that doesn't usually happen you know you get a quarter inch and then nothing for a week where this kind of rain that we've been getting since the first august these are sustained rain events And i was talking about that earlier this year on some episodes about looking at the drought monitor go look at the drought monitor there is more white on there now i mean california that's i don't remember the last time i saw all of california in white there is so much water in the west right now and it just keeps coming and that's what we want that's that in all things being equal that's going to make a way bigger difference on growing a deer herd than a lot of the stuff that we can do and so it's looking good right now. I hope it continues. It reminds me of 2004 and 2005. We we were getting water like this back then, and you know, sustained, you know, out of the drought for a full 12 months. You know, things like that. You know, might get a dry month or two, but but overall the habitat was good. And then look where we were in 06 and 07 in a lot of the West. You know, we were doing really good. And that wasn't limited quota hunts. That wasn't that. Hey, nobody could travel back then. No, no, man. man there's been guys coming to Idaho since the '60s, and in fact, there, there's a few, there's a few swear words that relate to the different residents of other states in Idaho, and I won't even say them because it's, it's it's mean. But you know, the people have always hated non-residents up here. Oh, they ruin everything, and. Um, uh, no, we've had a lot of non-resident pressure in Idaho over the years, yet we were still growing good deer in those, in those favorable weather years. And, and I know it's not just about favorable weather. You know, we've got encroachment on habitat. I, I get all that and understand that. But at the same time, this is, this is the big one, is, is weather. And, man, it's looking good right now. And I hope it continues. And I think if it will... You know, we're, we're going to get on our feet. We should see some really fat deer coming through the check station this year. Um, you know, we don't have any lotus harvest going on right now. Rightly so. They're down. So they've trimmed back a lot of these lotus hunts. So we won't be measuring fat on does. But, um, you know, I'm predicting the fat on the buck should be looking pretty good. The only reason it won't be is if, you know, they got such a late start this year you know, with the the long, cold spring. So, uh, but they should be looking good. Um, I can almost hear the bitter brush growing as I do this episode. So let's see. Um, Update on my Swarovski ATC. That is their compact spotter. They released it about a year ago. It never really got into everybody's hands in mass until, you know, this winter, this spring. Rockslide has published a couple reviews on the ATC and uh you know you heard me talk about on other episodes i always asked the guys at Swaro whenever i could get their ears why do you guys not own the compact spotter market i mean there's some good compact spotters out there that little maven a compact spotter. Tony Treach did a review on it a few years ago. That's a good compact spotter. The Nikon ED, I did a review on that. I, I still got that thing, and I didn't even have the best eyepiece for it, and um, it, it did really well. I've heard good things about the Cowas. haven't personally had uh, their compact spotter against any of these other ones. I've looked through one. Scotty Thompson had one. It was pretty good, um, but I just always thought, you know, Swaro, you're holding out on us. You need to jump into this market get us a, a high-end compact spotter, and, and they did. And I never got mine until uh, July this year. And if you jump back a few episodes, you'll remember I, I, it started off with a bang. I was super happy about it. And then I looked through it, and it was hazed. And I could look down in the, um, at, the, at the first lens behind the objective lens. You know, you turn a spotting scope around, shine it in the sun, you can see there's a, it's a stack of lenses. The second lens back looked like it had milk on it. Her dried, hu- dried hard water is what it looked like. I don't know what happened. And I, man, I was not happy. Like Man, I finally get this thing. It's scouting season and I've got problems. So I got a hold of Swaro through their customer service. Um, I didn't get any special treatment. You you would have got the same treatment if you would have just spot, uh, bought a spotter and it failed on the first trip out. Um, they sent me a an overnight shipping label. Um, and I think I sent it back on about August 12th, 13th, something like that. And um, I had it back in two and a half weeks. Um, I just missed the first end of my archery hunt, but when I got home, I took a little break, went to my daughter's soccer game, it was sitting on my porch, so I took it back out. And I, I, I emailed back the service and asked them, what was wrong with it? And all I got back was it had a loose screw. You know, they didn't get into any, any details. You know, of course, this is Rock Slide. We wanna know the details. What did that loose screw cause? You know, like, why was it loose? You know, I've owned a lot of Swaro products and while I've broken a few things, I've never had anything fail right out of the box like that. So it was a loose screw. Um, If you remember when it did fail on me, we had very, very high humidity. Uh, We just come off of one of those big rain events, you know, that first week of August here. I think that was Hurricane Hillary that we had up here. Um, Tropical Storm Depression Hillary by the time I got up here. and just high humidity, and maybe with that loose screw, I just, you know, I, I don't know if I broke the vacuum or what. But, anyways, the scope is back. I ran it for a full six day hunt, uh, spent a lot of hours with it. It's the bomb. Um, if you want to read a written review, uh, Matt Cashel, um, our, our Rock Slide Optics writer, uh, he, he did a review. Just go to our homepage, type in Swarovski A T C and uh, that'll come up. You'll see within his review, True to Rock Slide, we take reviews from members and uh, we want unbiased reviews. So of course we're gonna invite members uh, to, to, to bring the reviews on. And uh, Court Gordon, um, he's, he's a hunter, I believe he's in Oregon. Um, he submitted a review on his and that is linked within Matt's review. And both of them gave uh, the ATC high marks. Court's review is more of a kind of an in the field, using it review, maybe more like something I would do. Matt's was the brass tacks, you know, this is how they're built. This is how they perform on a resolution chart at you know 35 yards in full sunlight and 550 yards in overcast you know he did all that stuff and i'll let you read the review but but in my six days of being out there with it um the field of view on the atc is really really good and i i'm comparing it to the swarovski ats 65 that's been kind of a workhorse for a lot of guys the last five years um, it's a solid spotter you can you can land one for about 2500 bucks um, it's not a great big spotter it weighs three pounds two ounces um, but it's you know it's not a compact by any means uh, but i can get it in a day pack that's what i've used the last year and uh sns archery did a review on it here this spring um, they, they they gave it really really high marks um, Swarovski has not admitted to improving the ATS over the years. They say they're still using the same design and everything, but it sure seems like it's gotten better than the ones that were available, say, 10 years ago. Um, come on, Swarovski, you don't hold that on us, man. You can you can tell us your trade secrets. But anyways, maybe there's a reason they don't tell us. I don't know, but they said it's still the same design and everything, but it, it, it performs really well. That's a great spotter. So um, my ATC, and I didn't get to do them head-to-head, but I have, because I was on a backcountry hunt, Um, uh, space-conscious, weight-conscious, I couldn't take them both. Um, But I've spent so much time with that Swarovski ATS. um, It's almost like doing a side-by-side when I look through another spotter. The ATC um, is 2 pounds, 4 ounces. So it's basically 14 ounces lighter. And that doesn't sound like a lot. That's almost a pound. But it's much more compact. The ATS is 15 inches long. Um, in the angled and the ATC is five inches long. So it's a third shorter, um, not as much girth. I mean, it's a small spotter. I can get it in a day pack. In fact, I might throw something on Instagram the next week or two and just some pictures of it in my day pack and and it hardly takes up any space. So you get a lot of uh, power to weight on this. And I don't mean power as in X, you know, 20X or anything like that. I just mean for the utility of that small spotter um, for the amount of space and weight that it takes up it it's good man it's good and i was spotting looking at bucks out to three and a half four miles and um you know you're always you know that's a long ways you know you don't get a you don't get a score on them very well unless they really get into a skyline situation or you know uh, here, here's a tip when you're glassing bucks and they're either all in the sunlight or they're all in the shadows and they're at distance, you know, a couple miles, you're gonna have a hard time judging their antlers because they just kind of get washed out with the background, but just keep watching the buck. And when he makes that transition from walking from the bright sunlight into the shadows or from the shadows into the bright sunlight, it throws a lot of contrast on the antlers. Um, and I don't know if it's just the background or the shadow. I don't really know, but I've noticed this over like 20 years, if I can just, get them to the edge, I can judge them. And that's exactly how this ATC was looking at these bucks at, you know, roughly three and a half to four miles. Um, I couldn't, you know, ATC, by the way, I said ATS, next up ADD, there it goes. The ATC looking at them at three and a half, four miles, you know, I'm like, okay, well, that's definitely a buck and I can definitely see antlers, but I had to wait for them to make that transition into the into the shadows or out of the shadows. And then I could get that quick one or two seconds. And it was as good as the ATS. Now this is at 40 power. The ATC only goes to 40 power. The ATS, depending on the eyepiece that you use, you can go to 60 power or 50 power. But if you followed any of my reviews over the years, you don't get to spend a lot of time at 50 and 60 power in real hunting conditions, especially on the edges of light, because the higher power you go, the less light transmission that comes through the scope. And then you add in wind and all these other things. That's why I don't mind a a 30 or a 40 power spotter, because a lot of times that's, that's the powers you end up using anyways. But at 40 power, I was identifying these bucks. Yeah, I probably was aching a little bit for my ATS to crank it up to 60. But I'm not so sure I would have been able to see much more. But I was able to identify these bucks, I identified them all as non-shooters. Best one was probably in that 25 inch range. Um, But um, definitely a lot of performance in the ATC. Um, But this is where it really shines. It's, It's got an eye relief of 20 millimeters where the ATS only has an eye relief of 17 millimeters. So, it's, it's better. That, so, it's not quite so sensitive when you're looking through it. You don't get black out as much. Um, I think it's called the vignette ring, you know, that black ring that kind of shows up if you're not perfectly lined up with your optics. Um, it, 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 you don't experience that as much. But the field of view on the ATC is also better. Now, field of view, out of, out of you know, many of the specs we talk about, you know, power, um, depth of field, you know, focus ability, um, light transmission, you I know, mean, all, the, all the different parameters we talk about when we're reviewing optics. Field of view is the ugly stepsister to me. It's the most underrated spec on a spotter. And what I mean by that is everybody's looking at power X. You know, they're always thinking X. But I spot way more bucks with a good field of view than I do a high power spotting scope. Because X just shrinks the field of view, shrinks the how much hillside you can look at. And, you know, remember we're we're not glassing bucks out in the middle of the
1: football field.
0: No, they're mixed in with the train, you know, the the up and down of the train, the shadows, you know, all of that other stuff. And to me, field of view trumps power. And so the more of the hillside I can look at, the 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 better it works with my brain and 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 if you think about it you know humans have we have a good field of view you know we we you know we can see a lot from from you know our toes to the sky And, and so then when i look through you know a high magnification optic you know i'm losing that ability so Just get out there and try it and you'll notice this is why i've always used eight power binoculars and not tens now i use tens for scouting because i can put them on on a tripod but when when i'm hiking i use eights because i love that field of view and i pick up a lot of animals with the bigger field of view that's just me um i wouldn't die on that hill i know some guys that use 10 and 12 power binoculars do just fine but but having a great field of view for me will show me more animals well the field of view on this little ATC at 17 power is 186 feet at 1,000 yards. If you go to the ATS at 20 power, that's as low as it will go, That's it only goes 108 feet. Now, that's 108 feet compared to 186 feet. Let's just say it's an 80-foot 80, 80 difference, it's roughly 40% smaller field of view. And you're like, well, well, wait a minute, but I got three more power. Trust me. You'll see more animals at 17 power with that 186-foot circle on that hillside than you will in that 108-foot circle on the hillside. All other things being equal. Okay. Um, and what, what I mean by that is like the ATC has a 65 millimeter objective, so it's going to have better light transmission. So, yeah, okay, if it's the edges of light, then 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 you, you, know, you may you may see more in the ATC if you can actually get on the bus but that big field of view in that little ATC is so impressive. And let me tell you what else a great field of view does. It gives you a great digiscoping experience, okay? So when you combine good eye relief with good field of view, you get a really good digiscope image. Um, Resolution has to be good, but when Matt did the uh, review on this, he he used a, a 1951 USAF, um uh, air force resolution chart the standard that we use with almost all of our rock slide reviews you know matt kind of trained us all on how to do that and um, it's just a chart with um, smaller and smaller lines and the smallest line that you can you can resolve you know that's considered higher resolution than a spotter that can only resolve a bigger line and so the ats yes it can resolve i think one more line um than, than an atc but that field of view and that eye relief makes for such a good digiscoping experience. I was really, really pleased when when I would I'm using the mag view. Um, uh, when, I, when I would throw that mag view up on that little ATC, it was just like watching a little TV. it was it was really neat. In fact, some of these bucks were far enough away that I would crank it to 40. And then I would put my phone on there. And you know, this has to be kind of middle of the day, good sunlight stuff. And then uh, my iPhone 14 has three power magnification. So then I would add that three power. Don't really know how that magnification works. If that takes you to 120 power, I I really don't know. But um, then I could get the buck in there and I could get just a little bit better view of him. Now, you know, it grains up a little bit when you do that and you lose a little bit of light transmission. That's why it needs to be um, kind of midday kind of stuff. Uh, which lends itself to early season mule deer because they're out at the midday, at least for a few minutes a day. And um, so I was really, really happy with that. So anyways, I'm kind of going on and on about it. Just go read Matt's review. Look for the link to Court's Review. I think if you want a small spotter, you're going to have a hard time beating this one. Now, I fully want to recognize Travis Bertrand just reviewed the new Vortex Razor. um, And I think it is a... 1739. It's right around in there. This is their kind of redone spotter for this year. Uh, that's a good little spotter too. I trust Travis, but the, that spotter is a thousand dollar spotter. This ATC is a twenty five hundred dollar spotter. You're going to get, and I've always talked about this in my optics reviews. We pay a lot for small differences. Now I have not done a side by side with with these two, but just reading Travis's review. And owning a few Vortex Razor products, like their their UHD binoculars, and um, I'll, I'll bet I'll bet it's pretty close. But in a head-to-head, I'm still gonna put my my money on the ATC. But remember, you're you're gonna pay at least fifteen hundred more dollars for this ATC. So this is what we do on Rockslide: we compare and we contrast. Um, you're you're always gonna you're gonna pay a lot for the best. And if you gotta have the best, uh, man, I haven't looked through anything better than than the ATC myself. Um, I'm sure there'll be more conversations about this on Rockslide as we, we attempt to get these in head-to-heads and that may be members and everything. A lot of people ask us, well, why don't you do the head-to-head? Well, it's logistics. Like Travis has the Vortex right now. You know, he's in Reno, Nevada. And, um, you know, he's hunting with it. It, it, it. It's hard to get everything together. And sometimes we get these scopes like, you know, I, I own this ATC, but sometimes these scopes are just sent to us as loaners. So it's it, it's logistically, sometimes it's hard to do head-to-head. So you're just going to have to trust the fact that we look through a lot of optics at RockSlide. And even if we can't do a, a good head-to-head, we're going to try to shoot you straight on on how we think that these these would perform in a head-to-head. But, but I, I would love it. And I'm, I'm talking to you, Matt. I'm talking to you, Travis. Um, you know, some of my RockSlide riders that have done these reviews. Man, if we could get a Swarovski ATC, that, that new Vortex Razor, get that Maven compact, and then the Nikon ED with um one of the good eyepieces. Now they're hard to come by. Um, you can only get them on eBay. I've been banned from eBay because I got scammed and I got in a fight with them, and um, so I, I was never able to go out and buy the good eyepiece for that Nikon ED. But a member lent me some of them, and they're they're pretty good. They make that a good scope. Um, so I just put that out there, you know, just in case anybody ends up doing a head to head on this. That you got it. The Nikon ED has better eyepieces than what's coming with it stock now out of Japan. Um, and then the, the Kawa compact. Now, I don't have the spec on that, I can know if it's the 553. Um, um, in fact, Matt might have that in that review. He had a Kawa in there. The Promenar, I'm um, looking at the picture here. Yeah, it is the 553. Man, I would love to see a head to head. He did a head to head between that and the ATC. You know, Matt, Matt has, Matt has covered that, but man, if you wanted a good compact spotter review, that would be it. But right now, because I've looked through. All of those optics I just mentioned, um, even though not at the same time, my money's on the ATC. I'm just gonna say it. Uh, Let's see. Um, That's everything on that right there. Um, We are gonna jump into hunting big mule deer right now. And the last time we read from hunting big mule deer was back in August. We were talking about big picture research. Big picture research to me is where hunters get stuck. Big picture research used to be all you had to do. Um, big picture research means the state and the unit. It, well, that's pretty much all you had to do. Just pick a state, pick a unit, go there and hunt. Um, you're probably going to find a good buck. That doesn't work anymore. We, we want to talk about the small picture research. The small picture research is still the last frontier in the research field because it's not widely available. And what I mean by... Small picture research is I'm talking the exact parts of mule deer country within a unit that you need to hunt. The exact basin, ridges, um, slopes, canyons, um, you know, the places in the unit that you need to focus on. That's what I mean by small picture research, and the reason it's not widely available is because the research services—you um, might get a consultant to tell you some small picture research stuff—but they're they're not usually publishing that. God forbid! I hope they don't. Um, and um, you know, most guys with any brain at all on social media—they're not sharing their small picture stuff. Um, on Rockslide, you know, we get a few loose cannons on there that do, but we've tried to really clamp down on that. And you know, the West is shrinking. We got to be careful what we share. And, um, you know, leave a little mystery. Leave, leave a little mystery for people to kind of learn things on their own. Um, it just protects us all when we do that. So that's what I mean about small picture research. So I'm just going to open my book today, jump into the small picture research. Uh, remember, I wrote this back in 2014. So some of it might be a little bit dated, but I, I think it's still pretty af- applicable. And uh, one of thing before I start reading, I got a tip from another podcaster out there, Dustin Whitwer of the uh, Finding Backcountry podcast. He's a friend, good guy to have in the industry. Um, He works for Gunworks, um, has a good podcast. Go go subscribe to it. But um, he reached out to me after my last podcast and said, man, we would love it if you would expand a little bit more um, within your stories when you're reading them from your book. Um, You know, maybe go into little anecdotal stories that had to do with, what you were reading, and and that's a great tip. The reason I haven't done that is, uh, you know, my life is kind of planned to the millisecond. You know, I got three jobs. I'm I'm still raising kids, getting ready to send some to college. Um, you know, I I just I just don't have a lot of time, and so I try to get the most for the least. Uh, that's where ADD has served me well. And um, so when when I started reading the book on the RockCast, the idea was I'll save these files. And maybe someday I actually can get an audio book out there. Now, all you Rockcast listeners, you're pretty lucky. You're getting the audio book for free. Um, But, you know, I'd love to have all the files together and maybe someday I can... I'm going to have an audio, just a clean audio version of the book out there. And so I didn't want to just chat through my chapters by by doing that. Now, I I guess I could have, and that's what Dustin was saying. Some of the best books that are out there, you know, they they actually do it. But, you know, I'm I'm almost halfway through the book now, and um, it's too late to change course. Um, So I'm going to keep the files clean and just read the book. However, I'm with you, Dustin. I'm going to try to comment a little bit more on the book and um you know some of the things that um you know that maybe maybe have changed since i've written it or um you know maybe a little anecdotal i mean there's anecdotal stories in the book and that's how i tried to write it you know make a point and then back it up with a story but anyways i will try that let me read it right now and then we'll come back on and maybe talk about it for a few minutes before we wrap up this episode the Rockcast is also powered by mag gear Step up your digiscoping game with the most streamlined digiscoping adapter in the industry. MagView pioneered a new era of digiscoping with its universal, minimalistic spotting scope and binocular adapters. The system is designed to eliminate the frustrations and inconveniences found in traditional digiscoping systems. MagView's multifunctional system consists of three interchangeable designs the S1 spotting scope adapter, the B1 binocular adapter, and the MagView phone plate. All MagView systems create an incredibly strong, stable digiscoping platform and only require a super thin stainless steel plate adhered to the phone to secure it to the optic. No more bulky phone cases, no more optic specific adapters. MagView is the digiscoping choice for minimalist hunters looking for one adapter to fit most in class optics. Many RockSlide members and staff have chosen the MagView system. You can see our in-depth review at RockSlide.com and the Rockslide YouTube channel. To discover more about MagView Gear, visit MagViewGear.com for full specification, installation videos, and tips and tricks. Start capturing your own MagView moments today. Talking to biologists, looking at statistics, and visiting forums are all great and necessary, but can tend to cause a hunter to think too big we need more specific information. Our research often causes us to think in units, but quality bucks think in terms of habitat and security. We often mistakenly show up for the hunt expecting the reputation of the unit to produce the results. In reality, we need to find exact places in the unit where big bucks are living and hunt those places correctly for the best results. I call this part of the process, the small picture. Most hunters stop at the big picture and then wonder why they didn't kill a big mule deer even after hunting hard for days on end. Usually the best sources of information is going to come from your own scouting and hunting. Typically you'll need to narrow down a big unit to smaller bites of country where you can focus your hunting days. That takes time, often several seasons, and is where you can get ahead of other hunters who are thinking too big and jumping around too much. A unit may be draw or general, the bucks don't care but usually has small pockets of protection you can find by scouting and hunting. Learning the two ridges and basin where a buck lives is virtually impossible unless you are there and there repeatedly. This is thinking small, but produces the best results. By thinking too big, we sometimes rule out units that have the potential to meet our goal. Unit X isn't good for big bucks, can be an overgeneralization. The unit may not be considered good, but parts of it could still produce great bucks. For example, some units have low success rates for big deer, so hunters look elsewhere. Well, elsewhere might have a higher success rate, but will also attract more hunters and likely carry a younger age class of bucks, unless it is a low low odds draw tag. By thinking smaller, we might consider units that are often overlooked in the statistics. You have to scout to find these units, but they are out there. A friend of mine found a tenacious buck a few years back in a unit that butts up against a fairly big town in Southern Idaho. Most people think of the unit as a place to kill a meat buck, and for the most part, it is. However, my friend is a tenacious buck hunter and looks for the small parts of units where bucks find the needed security and feed to survive and thrive. One August morning, he found this buck, a buck over 30 inches wide, living a mile from town in some rough coolies, and for the most part, held very few deer. It was definitely not a destination for trophy hunters, and the unit would never be listed in the latest magazines as a must-apply. I try to scout places like that when possible. Often I come up empty-handed, but on occasion I'll find a real sweet spot that's been overlooked because of the unit's average reputation. The reason I talk about focus so much is that if you're not focusing almost year-round on finding big mule deer, you'll be in the same boat as thousands of hunters come opening day. Those hunters will be in good units with plenty of good bucks within rifle reach, yet well over 90% of the hunters will go home with a little buck or nothing at all. They didn't know where and how to hunt the bucks in the particular place they've chosen. Even when you do know exactly where to hunt, big mule deer are tough to kill. But knowing the area one or more of them call home will keep you out there day after day until it eventually happens. I've run a successful scouting service since 1997 and put hundreds of hunters in country where I've seen bucks they'd be more than happy with, including a few really big bucks. Some have killed some great bucks simply because they were in the right place. It doesn't matter how great a hunter you are, if you're not where big bucks call home, you'll never kill one. I've also had hunters hunt a day or two and just quit and move somewhere else. I remember finding one 34 inch typical buck while scouting for a guy one year. The buck was incredible, and the fact that he lived in an OTC unit made him, him even rarer find. I put all the information on a map and sent it to the hunter. We even talked on the phone at length to make sure he knew how to hunt that buck. What happened? He called me on the second day and said he hadn't seen the buck and was going to try another place he knew of about, of about 150 miles away. He never killed a buck, surprise. My point is you have to get beyond the big picture if you want to hammer a smoker buck. The following is how I do my small picture research. Boots on the ground. That's a tired old expression of forgetting out of your armchair and getting on the ground where the true action and fun really are. If at all possible, I try to visit my unit before I hunt it or even apply for it. There is simply no better way to find the bucks and their haunts than by showing up. While this can be called scouting, I think of scouting as actually hunting an area without a weapon before the season. Before I can do that effectively, I have to know where to look. There are up to four steps I take before I scout. Talk to the locals. Log on to any great forum and start asking where to hunt big bucks and the hunters who really know what you're looking for will just hide. You'll get information on great draw units and general information on OTC hunts but not usually much that is specific enough to help you in the small picture. However, drive to some deer country and start talking to locals and you'll be surprised what you can find out. Because most good mule deer country is in rural areas, you'll meet some pretty nice folks out there. Since most locals are down in the mouth about mule deer hunting, they're still stuck in the glow- glory years, they'll often tell you every, pl- every place big bucks have been killed because they think it won't happen again. I've had that happen dozens of times and have followed up on the leads. More often than not, I find out something that helped me, even with tips that are a decade old. If mule deer hunting is still pretty good in the area, then you can take advantage of the fact that the locals are proud of it and usually want to talk about it. If he is a hunter himself, he'll probably be evasive, so I don't pry. However, if you're lucky enough to meet someone who is not after big antlers, or is just a helpful person, you better listen carefully. Just last fall, I was scouting an area where I'd seen a tremendous buck the year before. He lived on a big hill with dozens of draws heading every direction. You could actually glass one of those draws from a public gravel road about a mile away better than you could from the hill itself. One morning, just as the August sun was rising behind me, I was glassing intently from my pickup, hoping to catch the giant when a man in his 80s pulled up on a Polaris Ranger. He asked what I was looking for, and when I said mule deer, he shut his machine off and started talking. 20 minutes later, I had a 50-year history on the mule deer hunting in the area. Although he didn't hunt anymore because the deer hunting had declined, he did tell me a place where a man who lived down the road had killed a 30-inch buck just the year before. I'd hunted that area before, and that information just confirmed that I needed to hunt it again. He also pointed to some country visible 10 miles away and said, those ridges always have bucks on them. While that might be a few years before I can visit the area he told me about, that's a hot tip I'd likely never have heard had I not talked to a local. Just a couple years ago, I stopped at a local convenience store in a small town, Colorado. When the clerk learned I was hunting with a muzzleloader for bucks, he grabbed a napkin off the counter and drew a crude but accurate map to where he'd seen a few big bucks just a few weeks before. These leads don't always pan out, but I'd seen only one decent buck in five days of hunting, so I didn't have much to lose. I drove out to the area and started glassing. Within an hour, I'd found two shooters, and within several days had chances at two really big bucks. When in Rome, do as the locals do, or at least listen to them. Sheep herders. Virtually every good mule deer book I've ever read mentions sheep herders as a good source of info. I think you could also add public land cattle ranchers to that list. And my mule deer book will be no different. These stockmen spend months every year in some of the West's best big buck country. They're out early and late in the day when bucks are most active and usually know where the best buck country is. Whenever I find these guys, I try to talk to them, which brings up a tip and a story. While earning my bachelor's degree in English, I was required to declare a minor in a language or a literature-related field. I've always been crazy and reconfirmed that to myself when I chose Spanish as a minor just so I could talk to the sheep herders. My dad had taught me as a youngster that the Basque sheep herders we, definitely see, we would frequently see in the summer knew where all the big bucks were. With that in mind, I enrolled in my first Spanish class when I was about 26. While I can barely find my way to the bathroom in Mexico, I can strike up a basic conversation with any sheepherder now. From these guys, I've gotten dozens of great tips, two of which directly led to killing my whitest Idaho buck and my highest scoring Wyoming buck. These guys are usually shy at first, but when they find out you can communicate with them, they usually become uber friendly. When one sheepherder by the name of Tomas Lozano found out I could speak, some Spanish. He insisted I camp with him one summer weekend when I'd been scouting some Idaho backcountry. He made me dinner on a f- freshly caught trout, rice, and garlic. When my horses broke loose and headed for the pickup, he quickly saddled his horse and handed over me to catch up with my errant mounts. One morning he woke me at 430 and took me with him to check the sheep at first light. Along the way he showed me several basins and ridges where he'd seen big bucks. When I asked him about the best place in the area for deer, he pointed to a mountainside three miles away, covered with broken spruce and aspen stands. Mucho banado allí, he said, which means many bucks over there. That just so happened to be the very mountainside where I killed my 36 inch wide Idaho buck about seven years later. Take a Spanish class. The Warden. While these guys and gals can be hard to reach, they are truly the boots on the ground personnel of the state game departments. They spent ample time in deer country, talked to hundreds of hunters, and learned all kinds of things you need to know. I remember back in the 90s there was an Idaho unit I had heard held some good bucks, including a rumored 40-inch someone had recently killed. The unit was widely known for good elk hunting, but pretty much only the locals hunted there for deer. I tried several times to reach the game warden. I called the regional office and asked for her several times each week. They'd usually reply with a laugh and say she leaves before the office is open and sometimes we don't see her for two weeks. I'd left a few messages but hadn't heard back. A month later I accompanied a friend on archery elk hunt in the same unit hoping to gain some knowledge on the buck hunting there. We were packed in on horses about five miles up a drainage when wouldn't you know it, the game warden came riding into camp. As soon as I saw the braided ponytail sticking out from under the beat up cowboy hat and the narrow waist, I knew I'd found her. After she checked our licenses, I mentioned that I'd tried to reach her earlier about mule deer hunting here. She remembered my calls immediately and apologized. She'd been working on a backcountry sting operation during that time and had planned to call me once she was caught up in the office. After about two minutes of talking with her, I knew of several more good bucks that had been taken recently and what to expect from the unit. When I asked her where I should be looking for bucks, she spun around in her saddle and pointed to a big mountain a few miles away. I've checked a few hunters who've killed big bucks there recently. They still hunt up around there, so they must think there's another one to shoot. She she turned around and waved her hand toward the country behind our camp, and that big rocky ridge above your camp is always good for a big buck. Talk to the warden if you can. Aerial scouting. Manned aerial scouting, done within the various state and federal laws governing its use, is an effective tool for locating buck country and sometimes bucks. Most states, now are on track to outlaw unmanned drones for scouting, and I concur. With no risk and low barrier to entry, soon the sky would be filled with drones. Every time I talk about aerial scouting, someone gets his shorts in a knot and accuses me of breaking law or being unethical. Personal ethics are just that, personal. So each person has to decide what is right for himself. Some people think it's unethical to hunt with a rifle, by the way. But the law is the line in the sand that we can't cross. Concerning the law, every western state and Boone and Crockett has rules governing aerial scouting. These laws, among other things, govern the time and distance between flight and hunting. Most states require between 24 and 48 hours between flight and hunting, and some, like Nevada, go further and restrict its use outside of any open season, which is a good law, by the way. Boone and Crockett bans trophies spotted from the air followed by landing in its vicinity for the purpose of pursuit and shooting. A person in the air also cannot communicate to anyone on the ground in the vicinity or harass game from the air. That last one is a federal law. My opinion is in line with these laws and rules. As I know if they are followed, aerial scouting does not give a hunter a decided advantage over his quarry. You still have to get on the ground and hunt that animal. Knowing where to hunt only helps the hunter focus his time and energy, just like using a trail camera or any optic for that matter. If you kill the animal, you still had to overcome the challenges of hunting within the law. As a pilot myself, I've spent hundreds of hours in the air and I've flown a hundred more with other pilots. I only fly pre-season in the summer when scouting for bucks that I might hunt. The closest I've ever hunted a buck I've spotted from the air is a week. Most cases it's a month or more. I use aerial scouting to narrow down the country to exact places to hunt. If you plan on hunting a new area, I'd recommend in finding an experienced mountain pilot who can show you the area. Don't just jump in a plane with anyone. Most pilots fly from airport to airport, which is completely different from flying close to terrain. I use Google Earth to get a preliminary look at an area and there- area and narrow down where I want to fly, then I share that information with the pilot. I also take a GPS and a notepad so I can note any certain country to scout once I start ground scouting. Make sure you understand all laws governing the country where you want to fly. For example, some wilderness areas don't allow flights below 2,000 feet, while other areas have security issues including flight restrictions over wildfire areas in the summer. Always be respectful of people you may see in the area and keep your distance. In 22 years of flying, I've spotted a half a dozen really good bucks from the air, but have killed only one or two of them after the season open. The value in aerial scouting lies in your ability to quickly learn a unit that is new to you. Shed antler hunting and winter scouting. I'm often asked how shed antler hunting and winter scouting fit into my plans. I certainly think they're important, but not completely necessary. In most places, you will not be hunting bucks on winter range, so any information gathered there is really part of big picture research. I love to hunt shed antlers, and it used to be a ritual, ritual for me. However, when I became a busy father and had to start focusing, I decided that shed antler hunting, done correctly, was just too much of a drain on my time and wallet, and wasn't all that important in finding bucks to hunt compared with all the other good information available to hunters. Also, with thousands of shed antler hunters out on the winter range spooking deer, I could never convince myself I wasn't adding to the problem. In much of the West, mule deer survival is dependent on not being harassed on winter range. I usually shed hunt now only if I've located a really big buck in the winter. At right is a picture of one of the few Boone and Crockett typicals I've seen over the years. I found him in early January and watched him until he dropped both antlers on January 17th. While only about 26 or 27 inches wide, he had everything he needed to pass the 190 net minimum, assuming a 21 inch inside spread. I later traded those antlers to my uncle, who is a taxidermist, for two full shoulder mounts, about $1,000 in value at that time. If I could do that five more times, I might break even on all the money I spent shed hunting as a young man. Still, I do winter scout in some places. I typically just glass from long distances and let the wintering deer do their thing. In much of the West, bucks move miles between winter and summer, so all I'm really doing is enjoying the scenery and getting a feel for buck to doe ratios and genetic potential of that particular herd. In some places, I take a journal and count every deer I see. I've done this for years and my data usually tracks with the published data of the game department, so I know it's worth tracking. Pre-season Scouting. Once I know of specific places to look for bucks, the real fun begins. Nothing will motivate you to hunt hard like knowing where a big deer lives. According to my wife, I get a glazed-over look when I've scouted up a good buck and the season is about to open. I'll pack and repack my gear, shoot my weapon to the point I damage it. Really, this has happened and have hard, a hard time accomplishing anything productive. Come deer season, I'm there for the long haul. I've hunted certain bucks 15 days straight. Not really recommended. Cashed in all my vacation time and begged for more and pretty much worn myself razor thin just because I knew where a big deer lived. If I can't scout an area, it's harder to hunt it hard. So I throw everything I have at the task. By the time I'm ready to scout an area, I usually know right where I want to go. I'll make sure that I'm in the area both at first light and again just before dark, watching for bucks. I'll spend other hours of the day working out logistics on how to access the area, learning the trail system, and finding good places to camp. While the goal is mainly to lay eyes on the big one, I've also learned they don't always cooperate on my schedule. Sometimes just getting the logistics of how to hunt the area has to suffice. If the area is a desert, Or water is just scarce, then of course I look for water sources. However, in much of the country I hunt, there's plenty of water, so I don't get too focused on it. I guess a buck doesn't travel more than about a mile for water, I think it's less in most places, and I found there's usually more water available in the form of seeps than we often think. If I do locate water in a dry area, I look for big tracks, which are the next best thing to seeing the buck. I'll also place trail cameras on water sources of I think it's worth losing the camera over. Always a possibility. Trail cameras have been a real game changer, and I've used them from desert areas to seven miles back into the high country. I think you need to use them too if you're close enough to deer country to check, out, check them often. I also find trail cameras are very effective on trails, who would have guessed, and are harder for a thief to locate. You can double your chances by setting trail cameras on trails that go through saddles. I scouted one area four times from the ground and still never found the big deer I'd seen there the season before. I had cameras out and finally picked him up at night on a trail. Had I not had cameras out, I may have given up and moved on too soon. If you live far from mule deer country and can't practically use trail cameras, don't worry. If I do a good job scouting, I can usually find out about the same information that trail camera gives me, especially in country with lots of water. You can scout anytime the season isn't open, but I find it most effective in late July and August. Depending on the area, some bucks don't even show up on their summer range until August. I found one area in Idaho that always held good bucks in July, but by the time the archery season opened, they were gone. I later learned from a biologist who had intensively studied that herd that these bucks actually stayed in the lower country until about August before moving into some higher elevation country, which really was not that high of elevation, a few miles away. It always depended on the water year, too. In drier years, the bucks moved up earlier, while in wetter years, they stayed low longer. That is why knowing your particular deer herd is so important. They all have different tendencies you can use to up your chances. You have to be careful in scouting or you can actually decrease your chances. If you spook the bucks into cover or out of the area, months of researching, planning, and scouting just went down the pot. I've learned this the hard way. In 2011, after a very hard winter, I scouted all the areas I knew, hoping to turn up a good buck that had made it through the brutal conditions of the previous winter. I'd ridden horses, hiked, and even flew some of my honey holes, but I could not find a buck over three years old. Finally in late August, I spotted a big wide buck at Timber's Edge one morning at sunrise. I knew the mountain well and had a good idea of where he might be on the October opener. I showed up two days before the season and set up my camp. I was prepared to hunt a week and was just plain happy I'd found a big deer considering there were so few available after the hard winter. The day before the season, I got impatient and hiked around the mountain on a narrow horse trail towards the hillside I'd seen him on. I just wanted to get a peek at him and maybe know where to be at first light on the opener. Hiking along at dawn, I noticed there were buck tracks in the trail from at least 3 or 4 bucks, and two of them looked like they were from big bucks. I had to choose between backtracking, climbing to the top, and then glassing down, or continuing on the trail on the same level the bucks were on. I took the risky choice and stayed on the trail, convincing myself he probably wasn't in the group anyways as I still had a mile to go where I had seen him. I should have studied the tracks more closely. I'd have realized they were only minutes old. Not 200 yards down the trail, I jumped the herd. Remember, the season is still closed until the next day. There were six bucks trotting away at 100 yards, spooked by my presence. I ripped the spotting scope out and got on them. In the front was a buck about 30 to 32 inches wide with heavy bases pushing six inches and long beams to match his spread. His antlers were only about a foot or so tall, and he had a huge body, indicating an old buck. Even without the height, he was a great buck few people would pass up, especially me. To make matters worse, there was a beautiful typical buck with the wide buck. He had booner backs, as I like to call them, really deep forks, and his left main beam was about 28 inches long and turned down near the tip. His gross score was over 190. Bucks like these are rare on any year. I spooked them badly and they hit the timber and turned down canyon. I climbed 500 yards above their tracks and attempted to locate them in the canyon they would headed into and then spent several more days over two trips up there in search. Of course I never saw those bucks again. The mountain gets pressured quite a bit and I would have had to get on them opening morning to have a good chance but if I just stopped and got above them when I saw the tracks, I probably could have had their home address opening morning. To find two bucks of that class in an OTC unit after a hard winter was a godsend, and I blew it. I still hang my head over that amateur move. Make sure when you scout, you do it as carefully as you'd hunt. Big bucks require a level of finesse few of us understand. All right, so that wraps up. That episode and that read of hunting big mule deer, the small picture research. Um, as I said before, a lot of guys get stuck at big picture research, and um, you just you you just got to get into the country and find the bucks. Um, that that's really where it's at. You know, if you get a really good draw unit, not a lot of tags, yeah, you can just kind of show up and probably do pretty good, but it's just not very productive in these these lower these lower units that are just, you know, basically the units that you can hunt every year where a lot of us end up. Um, you know, some of those tips I gave you about about talking to locals and talking to sheep herders and everything, those are still valid. Uh, just this year, I talked about it on the podcast, that nine-year-old guy I was talking to, you know, he, he gave me some tips about the area, some encouragement about the area. That's just the kind of stuff that you, you can only get talking to locals. Um the sheep herder thing, oh that's funny. Um, you know, when I wrote this book eight years ago, my Spanish was even a little better now. And it's, I think it was just because I was talking to more guys then and I've kind of let it go and I, man, I'm just I'm just not as good at it as I was, and I was never really very good. But, you know, enough that I could I could I could let them know that I knew a little Spanish. Um a lot of times I just say to them, first thing I say to them is, uh, uh, tu sabe inglês? Ask them if they know English. Because if they do, then I, then we just we just convert to that. But, you know, if, if they say no, and then I'll just ask them, I'll just say Bernardo Grande with, with a question mark and hold my arms out. And more often than not, they light up. They really do They'll at least smile. And, you know, some of them, some of them don't know either. They don't, they don't know where any big bucks are. But in 2021, this is why I know this still works. I took my son on a deer scout. It was in the summer and um, we're riding down the trail and here's a sheep herder. And I camped off the side of the trail. So I just asked him, you know, tu English, and And he said, yeah, I know English. And, uh, you know, he, he was, he, he, it was broken English, but it, it was well enough we could talk. So, you know, I just, I, I thought I remembered him. I think I'd seen him in the area before. And so, you know, I just, just kind of reintroduced myself. And I couldn't tell if he, if he remembered me or not. But, anyways, just kind of broke the ice with him, told him what we were doing. And, if I, and I said, you know, have you seen any big bucks when you've been out tending the sheep? He told me exactly where he had seen a big buck like a week or two before and the area he told me i knew it really well he mentioned the landmark and he said west of there and a lot of times that's all you get you know sometimes these sheep herders they don't even know you know all the names of the drainages and all that stuff you know you get rough directions but sure enough later that year and i don't know if it was the same buck i ended up finding a really good buck in there and i probably would have looked there anyways i probably really would have. it was on my list of one of the places to go and sure enough there ended up being a really good buck in there i didn't kill him that's a different story but it, it still just reminded me this this whole local knowledge thing you know that that guy was happy to tell me that hope i run into him again and i can i can tell him what i turned over his name was i wrote it down somewhere ariel or something like that so uh uh, he'll be he'll be impressed if 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 I if I remember his name. So always remember that people are people, and a lot of people are really helpful. Hunters aren't. Hunters want to throw you red herrings, but you know any 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 local that's out in the area, you know, a lot of them are going to be impressed that you're even out there scouting. You know, they're they're usually good resources. Um, let's see. I talked about the game warden. I've talked about game wardens before in other parts of my book. They're 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 really. The you know they're even better than biologists because they're they're out there in the field. They check bucks. They you know they know where bucks have come from. You know and 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 you know it's always worth a shot to talk to them. It's definitely a lot of people don't even think about it. Uh, let's see the aerial scouting. Um, I still do that sometimes. It's not as as necessary as it used to be because Google Earth got so good. And, you know, as I said in there, you know, more than half the value in aerial scouting is, is learning country. And you used to just didn't even have a way to do that. You know, you just, you had a flat map, you know, if you were lucky, maybe you bought a raised relief map, you remember the, you know, those, those little maps that you could like, you can touch them, you can feel the mountain and all that. You know, if you were lucky, you had those, but man, you get in an airplane, and fly over mountain range and take a GPS and just mark some spots, you can narrow down a lot of country in a hurry. Um, spotting big bucks is hard. Um, you know, you, you, you can't harass them. You gotta stay back. Um, you know, that's where sometimes aerial scouting gets a bad name. Guys are buzzing them and harassing them. And, and by the way, if you ever do go aerial scouting and you see people on the ground, just leave. Just leave. Don't, don't go near them. It's not good. It's not good ethics. You know, they were there. Um, and you know, when you're on the ground and a plane is close by, man, it just feels so intrusive. And um, you know that's where some of these horror stories come from, Um, but I find you know scouting in the summer, you know, I hardly ever see anybody, and um, it's still helpful. I just don't do it as much as I used to. Man, I used to probably get fifty hours a year. Um, My my friend Steve was a pilot, and um, before I was, and um, you know, we flew in his his, uh, uh, let's see, it was a Cessna one seventy two XP. It was great for the mountains. The best plane I ever flew flew in for aerial scouting was owned by a guy that subcontracted with the fishing game and he would fly their grizzly bear and their Wolverine stuff. And I knew the Wolverine biologist pretty well around here. And he took me one time and it was, um, it was a Husky. They're, they're like a Piper Cub on steroids, but he had cut the floors out. And so, and, and installed glass panels, plexiglass panels. Um, so the floor essentially was just a little walkway, just wide enough to put your feet on so that your feet weren't on the glass. But then you had this glass underneath the fuselage so you could see straight down. That was a scouting machine there because you could see so much. Sometimes in planes, you know, it's it's pretty hard. You have a little window and everything. But anyways, if you know a pilot or you are a pilot, it's always worth it to take a ride over deer country. Just be careful, make sure you know the laws of the area. Like I said, you know, Nevada, I think they don't allow anything once a big game season gets rolling. So that's like around July 1st with the antelope hunts, I think. Um, Utah, I think, just went with the July 31st or sooner. You, uh, Wyoming, you can't fly after August 1st. Um, you know, so so make sure if you do if you do it, you stay within the law. You know, the horror stories come from the guys that are that are not staying within the law. Um, but if if you can't fly. Google Earth will show you most of that stuff, but you know, I just love flying, That that's half of it too. Uh-huh. There's never, never a bad day in the air. Um, and you know, big bucks are really hard to judge from the air, a lot of times you just get a quick look, you know, you don't want to harass them, so you got to kind of stay back. Um, but you know, it's a lot of fun if you get a chance to go. Um, the drone thing I wrote about in there, I really haven't seen a lot of drones. You know, I, back when I wrote this in 2014, I thought, man, they're gonna be everywhere. I haven't really seen that many. I don't know if it's just their short range or what, um, or they're just not very usable in a lot of deer country. I don't know, but I just, I, don't, I hear of a few, I hear a few guys talking about them, but I've never personally seen anybody using one. Um, and if it's all preseason stuff, I don't worry about it anyways, because you gotta get on the ground and kill them. And that's the tough part. Um, let's see, shed hunting, we talked about that. I'm still not a big shed hunter. I go a little bit every year. You know, I found one pretty nice shed last year, but um, you know, it just, just becomes such, a, such an issue. I always feel bad when I'm out there, but I'm not against it. I'm, you know, I, I think um, the, the, the shed laws are good. Um, the guys that complain about shed laws about the only thing they really offer up as well, there's other users out there. So why ban us? And I, I don't know, I don't have the answer. I just know I've seen some terrible things while shed hunting, um, you know, just a lot of pressure on deer. Last year, this was on an elk. Um, I have the video. The Fishing Game has the video because the guy gave it to him. A guy on a on a snow bike, chasing a bull elk, trying to get his antlers. And this elk just like he's chasing him. It's not super deep snow, but the elk was tired. And the part of the video I got to see, the elk had finally just stopped and turn around and just kind of face the bike you know um like accepted his faith it was sickening to watch and and i don't know i, mean, I know i know that's not what most shed hunters do i get all that but i don't know it's just it's just a rough time of year on them and and so you know just just be careful if you're out there shed hunting just know it's a, it's a tough time of year on a lot of winters it's, you know especially for our mountain bucks um, you know when i wrote this book i thought my pre Preseason scouting chapter would be a lot bigger than what it was. You know that part I read at the end, um, and it ended up not being very big. And and I think why is because you know as, as you write a book, you know, and your thoughts travel from your brain through your fingers onto paper, you kind of sort a lot of stuff out. And I think I realized that preseason scouting is pretty dang simple. <laughs> <laughs> and all that big picture stuff we talked about a few episodes ago, the small picture stuff I talked about this time, all that research kind of takes care of a lot of it. And then once once you've got your small picture down, you know where you're going. It's just a matter of being there when the deer are on their feet, you know, and using your optics, you know, be careful. Like I said, I gave you an example in there where I, I screwed myself on on two big bucks because I didn't, scout carefully. And I've heard guys say that they don't care if they spook them when they scout. I do. And I don't want to educate any deer, even if it's a month ahead. I don't want to, you know, just the less that they know, the better. So be real careful with it. But anyways, that chapter came out pretty short because I think, I think scouting is is pretty simple. And um, it's just being there and, uh, you know, trying to get some eyeballs on the deer. That's the gold standard. Man, if I can get a spotting scope on the deer in the preseason and really get a look at him, I know what I'm chasing. Talked a few episodes back, you know, this this year when I finally got the spotting scope on that deer and during hunting season. He wasn't quite as big as I thought when, when I was scouting. But, you know, I'm still happy that you know to find him and everything. But, man, if you can, you can get some time on him before the season, it's great. If you don't have time to scout in the summer, don't worry about it. Some of the best scouting still, the, you know, a little bit right before the season. Just be careful because if you spook him, not going to be much time for him to come back. And, and usually they just don't. I find that you you, you can spook a velvet buck a little bit. You spook a hardhorn buck, man. It's hard to find them again. So, anyways, there, there you go, Dustin Whitler. There's, there's a little commentary on that chapter right there. I um, uh, appreciate the tip. Looks like my upcoming chapters they're about gear, weapons, weapon systems. We're gonna get through all that. Um, horses, um, clothing, you know, a few things like that. Optics, and then we're gonna get into the meat and taters of hunting big mule deer which i i think there's nine techniques in here that i've used i've used all of them but one to kill big deer Um, i mentioned the other one because i know other guys that have used it and um that'll be kind of the meat and potatoes of the book looks like we're not quite halfway through the book but we're getting close i appreciate you listening in and uh, say hi if you're on uh, rock slide or you're on instagram and we'll catch you on the next episode